before we look at our text. There's something, as I was studying yesterday afternoon, that came to mind. There are a couple of pictures, I'm sure many of you have seen them, of JFK Jr. under the desk of his father in the, in the Oval Office, playing under there. And these are iconic shots. And the reason why these pictures are so incredible to look at is because John Jr. is sitting at the feet of one of the most powerful people in the world at the time. He's just sitting there playing. And I used to imagine as a kid what it would be like to live in the White House and for my dad to be the president of the United States. Now, in retrospect, I thank God that he is not or never was the president of the United States. But as a kid, it looks like such an incredible thing. And, and if you grew up in the 90s, you would have seen a movie called First Kid with Sinbad as the, um, the secret service man taking care of this kid. And he was able to do all these ridiculously awesome things. And, and that's what I thought living in the White House would be. Why do I bring this all up? Well, our text this morning while difficult to read at many points, takes this notion of political power and influence and it flips it on its head. And where we end up, for those of us who conquer, is not with a mere seat in the Oval Office, but on the throne of King Jesus himself, where we will reign with him for all eternity. That's where we are heading as followers of Jesus. That is our, as, as fancy people say, our telos, our end goal, to be seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So before we jump in the text, let me pray really quick, and we'll see what God has for us. Father, thank you for this incredible message that you deliver to the churches, Lord, and not just to one church some 2,000 years ago, but to the churches, to all the churches, as Pastor Tim articulated last week. Father, convict us of our sin and draw us near to you and make us more and more like your son Jesus this morning, Father. That's what this is about, Lord, that we would be conformed to the image of your son and that we would show the world just what you are like, Father. That is our prayer, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So, some history. The city of Laodicea. It was about 10 miles north of Colossae, which the letter of Colossians was written to. And it was south of the city Hierapolis. See, Laodicea was a wealthy city. It centered on things like banking, medicine, and clothing, issues that will come up in our text in just a few minutes. Why do I bring this up? This was a city of affluence and prestige. A city of affluence and prestige. And that desire for affluence and prestige had seeped into the church, causing God's people to long for worldly prosperity at the expense of serving Christ. It was causing people, the people of God, to long for worldly prosperity at the expense of serving Christ. One commentator, he puts it like this, the flourishing church was exposed as partaking of the standard of the society in which it lived. It was spiritually self-sufficient and saw no need of Christ's aid. So in studying this passage, I couldn't help but be reminded of the American church and how we have allowed worldly values, financially speaking, numerically speaking, and even politically speaking, to shape the way we think and live out something that barely resembles 
the mission of God laid out for us in Holy Scripture. What we're seeing and what we've seen throughout the years is not biblical Christianity. And and Jesus gets right to the point in this text. And I'm going to say some hard things this morning. We're going to talk a little bit about politics, but not in the way maybe some of you might think. We're We're going to look at ourselves. We're going to examine ourselves to see whether or not we are buying into this worldly view of Christianity or if we are following Jesus. And they're two very different things, and they don't work together. They don't work together. So let's take a look, starting in verse 14. It says this. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. The words of the amen. Right from the start, we need to open up our Old Testament. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 65 for a second. In Isaiah 65, verse 16, it reads like this. So that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. In the Hebrew, it is the God of amen. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of amen. Because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. The words of the amen, basically what Jesus is getting at, he's identifying himself, and we've been talking about this throughout this letter because because John does this beautiful thing of just giving us some Christology at the beginning of each letter, who we're dealing with, the one who is speaking, Jesus himself is the God who spoke in the Old Testament. He is Yahweh himself, and I know I share this weekly, but it's so important that we wrap our minds around this, that Jesus is picking up on the language of the Old Testament to show his listeners and his readers just who he is. We're dealing with Yahweh. We're dealing with Yahweh. But something really cool that happens as you read on in this Isaiah passage, it says in verse 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be gladness. In other words, what we're dealing with is this articulation of new creation, of new creation, that Jesus is the God of new creation. He's the beginning of new creation. The text goes on. It says, it says, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness. See, Jesus was referring to himself in chapter 1, verse 5, or John was referring to himself as referring to Jesus in chapter 1, verse 5. It says this, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. The firstborn. Right? The faithful and true witness is the firstborn of the dead. What does that mean? He's the resurrected one. And what does it mean that he's the resurrected one? None other, again, that he is the beginning of new creation. We're dealing with a text that's trying to show us where this world is heading. It's heading toward new creation. And that new creation began the moment that Jesus stepped foot out of the grave. 
So when we talk about the end times, when we talk about the latter days, when we talk about fancy words like eschatology, we're talking about the moment that Jesus stepped up out of the grave till he comes back again and for all eternity. That's what we're dealing with. We're in the midst of new creation. And Jesus is the one who started this entire thing. It also says this. It says, the beginning of God's creation. I want to flip over with you to Colossians chapter 1. And I want to read with you, starting in verse 15 and following. He is the image. Where's my water? I can't belt out music and then I just got to drink water. I thought I was playing in a rock band again in college. He is the image of the invisible God. And what does it say right here? The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Again, that language comes up again. That in everything we, he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We're dealing with the God of new creation. And there's so much hope in that. Right from the get-go, when we, when we study the person of Jesus, when we get to understand who this man was and is, it gives us hope because in the same way he died and rose again, so too will we, those of us who put our faith in Christ, who bend our knee to King Jesus, we too will rise up on the last day as he did, and we will be with him for all eternity. So as we live in this mess that we call life right now, and oh my goodness, it is a mess right now. It's a mess. I mean, flip on any news station. It is a mess. And it's not even news. It's just commentary. It's just talking heads telling us what we're supposed to think when we have the word of God that teaches us what we need to know. Amen. We're allowing ourselves to be discipled by things that we ought not be discipled by. And Jesus is saying, no, no, look to me. Because I'm reshaping this world. I'm the one ushering in the new heavens and the new earth. And there is no king or queen under the sun that is doing what I'm doing. Oh, oh no, wait, time out. You know who is? The church, his people, as we operate in Christ. We are the ones who bring about flourishing in this world as we show the world what God is like. And so I think it's interesting because in, in stating that he's the beginning of God's creation, it's, he's referencing Colossians 1, he's referencing that Isaiah passage, but it also has these echoes of Genesis too, and, and even John 1.1, right? Because the same guy who wrote this book wrote John's gospel as well. And so we have this God, this man, Jesus, who, who was the one who was seated with the Father during creation, and it was through him that creation was spoken into existence, but it was also through him that new creation came. There was chaos, and then there was life. In the same way there was chaos in life in the beginning in Genesis chapter 1, guess what? There was chaos at the cross, and then three days later, he rose again. Amen. Three days later. So Jesus is always bringing life out of chaos. 
He's always the spirit of God that is hovering over the waters. This is our God. This is our God and this is our hope. What's the point from the very start of this letter to the church in Laodicea? Jesus makes it clear that we are dealing with not only the God of creation, but the God of new creation. So hitching your cart to anything other is utter folly and will result in judgment, as we will see in just a second. It is utter folly, and it will result in judgment. And so the text goes on, verses 15 through 19. It reads as follows. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so you may clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and solved to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. So the table is set. We know who we're dealing with. And Jesus proceeds to lay out his concerns for this church. And, and this is the one church who receives only discipline, no commendation. There's no commendation here. And what does he say in verses 15 and 16? He knows their works. I know your works. We've seen that before. In fact, every letter starts out with, I know something. In Ephesus, he knew their works, their endurance, how they could not bear with evil. In Smyrna, he knew their tribulation, their poverty, and the slander that was being spoken against them. In Pergamum, he knew where they dwelt. In Theatira, he knew their works, their love, their faith, their service, and endurance. In Sardis, he knew their works. In Philadelphia, he knew their works. In Laodicea, he knows their works. And the question we need to be wrestling with, what does he know of us? What does he know of us? Because remember, Jesus is the one walking around amid the lampstands. He's the one walking around in the middle of the churches, all the churches. And the question that we need to be wrestling with is, is what would he say to the Church of America, New Jersey, Tom's River, Redeemer Fellowship? What would he say to us? What does he know of us? What is he asking us to wrestle with? What is he disciplining us for? We have to wrestle with these things because we can never get to the point where we think, oh, he's not talking to me. No, 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 he's talking to us. And he's calling us. And he's telling us that we need to repent of things. Let's see where this goes. He says, he says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So he knows their works, and, and he's acquainted with their works as he walks around in their midst. And what does he know about this particular church? That they are neither hot nor cold, but that they are lukewarm. So I want to make something clear. Jesus is not saying, this is important, he's not saying that he would rather they be on fire for him or be raging atheists. It's not what he's saying. And I think sometimes we interpret this, it's like, man, he'd rather me just be on fire for God or not love him at all. He doesn't really want anyone in the middle. That's, that's not exactly what he's saying. That really wouldn't make any sense, biblically speaking, or in the immediate context of this letter, both textually and historically. So what is he saying? Remember the history. Laodicea sat between two major cities. To the north was Hierapolis, who had a water supply that was hot. It was hot. 
and it was medically useful in the ancient world. To the south was Colossae, who had a water supply that was cold and fresh, pure and life-giving. And in the middle was Laodicea. And they had to get their water from other places. And by the time it arrived to their city, it was, it was, it was the sort of water that literally made people vomit. It literally made you vomit. I, I, I ate a vitamin a couple weeks ago without, uh, on an empty stomach. And, and, and out of nowhere, I, I literally had to pull over my car on the parkway. And I, and I threw up. And Deanna's like, did you eat anything? I was like, no. She's like, well, you're supposed to eat something. I was like, yeah, well, I, I, I didn't listen. I wasn't watching. I, you know, what am I going to say? <laughs> One scholar says it like this. The affluent society, which is Laodicea, was far from the sources of its life-giving water. And when, by its own resources, it had sought to remedy the deficiency, the resulting supply was bad, both tepid and emetic. I learned that word this weekend. Um, nauseating. That's the word emetic. I don't, is that like a doctor term? There you go. Look at me. The effect of their conduct, so in turn, the effect of their conduct upon Christ was like the effect of their own water upon them. So the effect of their conduct upon Jesus himself was likened to the effect that their own water supply had upon them. What's the point? This church's works and their idea of mission was so compromised by their surrounding culture that Jesus himself wanted no part in it, so much so that he was unable to stomach them and was ready to spit them out of his mouth. Redeemer, this is a warning passage. There's a few of them scattered throughout the scriptures. This is one of them. This is a warning passage. How do we read this passage in light of our own lives, both individually and corporately as the body of Christ? We're going to get there. The text goes on, verses 17 and 18. It says this, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that... In order that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And so while this church might be rich and prosperous according to the standard of their surrounding culture, Jesus describes them as wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And those last three are interesting, considered, excuse me, the standard by which the church was comparing themselves and the cultural landscape surrounding this local church. A little bit of a, a sidebar, if, if you were in the ancient world and you were this wealthy, your church was this wealthy, especially in cities that were marked by, by idol worship, good chances are you are also participating in idol worship. Because in order to be that affluent, in order to be seen as rich, especially in these seven churches, you had to be working with the idolatry that was taking place in those cities. You had to be. And so chances are this church was not only borrowing from the world, they were also getting in bed right with the world. They were practicing idolatry most likely, most likely. 
And so let's think about it, right? Poor, blind, and naked. Remember the historical context. This was a city centered on banking, the medical field, specifically ophthalmology, and clothing. Did a lot of history work this weekend. It was very fun. So they're being described, this rich city centered on banking as poor, this, this, this prosperous city in the medical field being described as blind, and this clothing industry, they're being described as naked. There's irony there. Do you catch that? Do you see what Jesus is doing? It's so clever. I love it. He's basically saying, he's like, yeah, yeah, no, I know you got a lot of money, but you're poor. I know you have all these fancy medical advancements, but guess what? You can't even see. And I know you have all these fancy clothes because you got all these fancy sheep running around, but guess what? You're naked. I mean, the writing of the Bible is so cool. Can we just acknowledge that for a second? Just from a purely literary um, standpoint, it's just, it's unbelievable. But Jesus is really just sticking his finger in their chest saying, you don't get it. You don't get it. And so he provides them with counsel. The only riches that matter are the ones that I offer. And what sort of riches are those? I counsel you to buy for me gold. What kind of gold? The gold that you go to the jewelry store and you just pick it up and you give them money? No, no, no. This is a different kind of gold. See, this gold is what? Refined by the fire. See, this gold requires that we enter into it through what? Suffering suffering. Again, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? It means to be a cross-bearing human. It means to be one who picks up the cross, who enters into the suffering of others. It's that missional suffering we talked about a few weeks ago. And that's where the treasure is found as we step into those painful situations. And the only clothing that has any hope of covering our shame is the clothing that comes from the hand of God himself. In Revelation 7, 14, it says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white. How? In the blood of the Lamb. In the blood of the Lamb. There's another clothing passage back in Genesis chapter 3. It says this, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Why? Because the fig leaves they chose were insufficient because we can't cover our own mess. We can't cover our own mess. And there's no ladder we can construct that will take us to the top of the mountain. No, it's Jesus that enters in. And that's why even thinking about this, as I'm, as I'm watching the news this week, as I'm watching our world and I'm watching the division that just keeps on entering in and I'm seeing it in the church, which is so heartbreaking, that what are we looking for? We're looking for political powers. We're looking for pundits on CNN and Fox News to bring us some sort of hope, but all they're bringing us is division. They are, they are speaking words from the pit of hell and we're just asking, feed us more, feed us more, feed us more. And Jesus is saying, no, shut up, don't listen to them. Listen to me. But we keep on going back to it, and I don't get it. And it's frustrating to watch families being torn apart because of political ideologies, because of views on whether or not I should wear a mask. Like, who cares? We follow Jesus. We follow Jesus. And that's what this text is getting at. It's saying you are trusting way too much in the surrounding world to tell you how to live when I've already told you. Redeemer, are we doing that? Are we doing that? Are we allowing our opinions politically, medically, 
to divide us, to divide our families, to divide us, to keep us from friendships. And my prayer is that we would repent of that if we are. That we'd scroll through our Twitter and Facebook feeds and even delete things maybe that need to be deleted. That we would stop conflating the worship of Jesus with this strange American patriotism because the two are not one and the same. They're not. I was watching something yesterday where, where literally people are waving American flags and Trump flags and they're singing hymns to Jesus. And I'm like, no, some, one of these things is not like the other. One of these things just don't belong. And, and if I'm upsetting someone, I, I don't apologize. They, they, don't, they don't belong. Now, I'm not saying we can't be patriotic. No, I'm not saying that. Of course not. But we cannot we cannot allow our Christianity to tell us, no, 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 the other way around. We cannot allow our politics to tell us how we should live out our Christianity. We can't. We just can't do it. God is saying no. He's screaming. He's screaming, stop, church. Stop. Right, left, it doesn't matter. Stop. Follow me. Follow me. He says this, he says this, um, that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. In a city known for its medical progress, the only way to recover from our blindness is to allow ourselves to be healed by the salve of almighty God himself. I mean, this is the state of American evangelicalism, taking its cues from things like American exceptionalism and the rugged individualism that penetrates deep into the American psyche. We have sought peace and a particular way of life through political ideologies that promise us everything and leave us wanting every single time. We have become rich, but we are so poor because we have chosen comfort over sacrifice, and the Lord Almighty vomits this sort of thing out. This is not... Christianity. This is not Christianity. Verse 19 goes on. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Those whom I love. There's so much hope in that one sentence. Because he's saying that to this church that he just ripped apart. He's saying... Yeah, I'm disciplining you because I love you. I love you. Jesus loves the church in Laodicea. He does. He says it right there. And he's, he's urging them, he's pleading with them, please repent of this. Please repent of this strange, thing, this strange thing you're trying to pass off as Christianity. Please repent of this. See, there's hope. He does not hate the church. He loves them. Redeemer Fellowship, I, I sometimes ask if the upheaval that has taken place in our own church, and, and, and guys, we're not alone. I talk to pastors. This is happening all over the country. This upheaval, this, this bizarre thing that we are all experiencing that we don't even really know how to name. We're just watching it unfold before our eyes. This is happening everywhere. It's happening everywhere. And the question I ask is, is this evidence of God's discipline? And, and I pray that it is because then that means he loves us and he wants us to prosper. I mean, I pray, I beg God that that's what's happening. 
I beg God that that's what's happening. And the point is, is that Jesus is calling us both individually and corporately to repent and get excited for for the mission he has laid out before us, to make disciples of all nations, to baptize them, to love him and to love our neighbors. Why? So that they might catch a glimpse of what God is like. I mean, right now, and I know I'm talking about politics a lot this morning, but it's, it's very much on everyone's radar, I think. Right now, we're experiencing confusion from from some of the highest seats in this country. Both the left and the right are claiming victory, the name-calling, the name-calling. Whether you watch Fox or CNN, what is being laid out before us is no better than watching two kids fighting on a playground. And many of us in this room are allowing ourselves to be discipled by these people, to be discipled by these people. And now don't get me wrong, when I was in middle school, I loved watching a good fight. We all did. Come on. Like, you know, you start yelling, fight, 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 and everyone crowns around. Yeah, yeah. Although I don't know if that happens anymore. I'm not sure. I'm not in the schools. But, like, we loved it. But, that, but like, guys, we're, we're followers of Jesus. Like, we can't love those things. We can't love a spectacle. Jesus calls us to something different. When I watch Christians on TV laughing when, when pundits are just mocking the other side, laughing and joining in on the mockery. That's not of Christ. It's not of Christ. And some of us have participated in it, and myself included. I, I have. I, I, I like to laugh, and sometimes my jokes can go too far, but we have, to, we have to watch ourselves. Why? Because there's a world watching, but more importantly than the world watching, because I think sometimes we think that the mission is the most important thing. No, 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 no. The most important thing is that we glorify God Almighty, and when we act like the world, we are not showing them Jesus. We're so, showing them something strange. Or we're showing them a Jesus that doesn't even exist. We have to watch ourselves. Because there's strong warnings against this sort of behavior. Very strong warnings against this sort of behavior. We are taking our cues on how to bring about human flourishing from people, networks, political pundits, politicians who don't care about the things that God cares about. This does not mean we don't participate in the process, but regardless of what side of the aisle you are sitting on, we must not put our hope in the process, and we must not take our cues on how to live our lives as followers of Jesus from any of these people, from any of these people, because they're not doing it. None of them are. Deanna and I literally were going back and forth this weekend between Fox News and CNN. Just, I'm not a news watcher. I'm not, partly because I don't believe what is being put forth on these networks is news. It's just commentary. And, and I'm watching it, and there's just literally making fun of each other. They're doing the exact same thing, just from a different perspective. And, I'm, and I started yelling at the TV, and I'm like, no, 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 turn this off. Let's just watch The Office and move on with life. Like, I, I, I can. But, but we're, we're being affected by it, church. It's affecting us. And it's affecting our relationship with God, and it's affecting our relationship with the watching world. We have to be aware of this. We have to be aware of this. Why? Because it is Jesus. 
as the text is about to say, who is standing at the door and knocking, not Donald Trump or Joe Biden. It is Jesus, should we open the door to the bridegroom who will come in and sit and eat with us. And those of us who open the door, we need to shut the door to a lot of other things in our lives as well. And in so doing, we will be named among the conquerors. But how does Jesus conquer? He wins by losing. He wins by losing. That is the story of redemption. It's from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Jesus wins by losing. And so when we put on Christ, we are called to do the exact same thing. What does it say in verse 20 and following? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, what does it say? I will grant him. To do what? To sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Can we remember what happened before he sat down on his father's throne? What did he do? He died. He died. He died. We don't win through oppression. We don't win by being bigger than the other guy. We don't win by being smarter than the other person. We don't win by being more witty than the other person. We don't win by having our candidate in the Oval Office. That's not how we win. We win when we allow ourselves to be crushed for the sake of the gospel. That's how we win. And there's no other way to tell the story. That's the only way we win is by dying. And that's what Jesus is calling us. And those of us who are self-aware enough to see the idolatry that is permeating the people of God, and in seeing it, we repent of it, we will not only eat with Christ, but we will reign with Christ as he seats us with him, not only in the heavenly places, as Ephesians says, but right there with him on his throne. Remember JFK Jr. sitting at the feet of his father in the Oval Office. What we have in store for us trumps that no pun intended, in so many ways. So many ways. Guys, I've said it before. We get God. We get God. And so, yeah, this life, this life might might be a mess. And it is. It's supposed to be. It's broken by sin. But we get God. That's the reward at the end of this trail, at the end of this race, is that we get Jesus Almighty. We see him face to face with unveiled faces. Right now we see through a mirror dimly lit, but in that day the veil will be removed and we will see Jesus face to face. During Advent we're going to be looking at the incarnation. We're going to be looking at some Old Testament passages where where we actually see examples of these things called theophanies, and we'll get into that in a couple of weeks, where the the presence of God is manifested in some way on earth, where Jacob wrestles with God, the, the burning bush with Moses, all of these things, and even Moses going up to the mountain and seeing the back of God. When we enter into eternity, all of those little signposts and those seeds that were scattered throughout the Old Testament will blossom into this beautiful, wondrous flower and tree because we will be there with Christ. We will be there with Christ. 
I want to read something before we close this morning. It says that we are going to be seated with him on his throne. And then the next chapter, it talks about that throne. It says, after this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. I'm going to read this whole chapter. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here. Imagine that. Come up here. And I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And and around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in the front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second like a living creature like an ox, the third like with the face of a man, and the fourth like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever they cast their crowns before the throne saying worthy are you our lord and god to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created that's where we're going church that's where we're going So all of this garbage that we're surrounding ourselves with, all of these things we're putting our hope in, our faith in, our trust in, those are going to pass away. We're going here. Chapter 4, read it, meditate on it, think about it. If you're going to watch the news, read this first. Let that be the grid through which you view all these things because that's where we're going. We cannot allow ourselves to function and take our cues from the world surrounding us, but rather we need to show them what God is like. We need to show them what God is like. This is where we're heading, and while John Jr. sat under the desk in the Oval Office, we will be seated with Jesus in the heavenly places for all eternity. This is good news. Jesus is king. It doesn't matter who's in the Oval Office. Jesus is king. And please do not mishear me. I'm not saying we don't get involved. Our involvement matters. We need to be light in dark places. But our hope does not rest there. Our hope does not rest there. The fear that is permeating this country. I mean, there is a spirit of fear in this country right now, that is something I've never seen. I've never seen it. And that's because people are placing their hope in the wrong things. And I'm not just talking about people who are not following Jesus. I'm talking about the fear in the eyes of Christians. The fear in the eyes of Christians. Now, I'm not saying we're not going to wrestle with that stuff. 
We're going to have waves of concern, of fear, of anxiety. I, I, I struggle with anxiety. I understand that. But we have to fight against it. We can't stay there. And we can't think fixing something worldly is going to take it away. It's not how it works. I mean, we know this when it comes to like basic things, right? Where it's like, it's like, oh, if I can only lose so much weight, if I can only get such and such of a person to like me, then everything will be better. We know that's not true. We know that's not true. But for some reason, when it comes to this political thing, we don't, we don't get it. And I know it, it, it does matter more than, than you, know, you know, gaining or losing 15 to 20 pounds. I know it matters more. I'm not saying they're the same. I'm not saying they're the same. There are more dire consequences to one than the other. But it doesn't change who Jesus is. In fact, nothing changes who Jesus is. Nothing. Not a single thing. And so, as we go to the table this morning, to, to eat with Christ, that's what we're doing when we come to the table we are sitting down to, to dine with Jesus. He, he nourishes our soul. Reformed folks call this means of grace. We're actually receiving Jesus in a, in a particular way, in a, in, a, in a better way, when we sit down at this table. When we do that this morning, we must go declaring him as Lord, trusting in the cross-shaped path to human flourishing as we shake off these filthy rags of worldly attempts towards fruitfulness and we clothe ourselves with Christ. With Christ. Redeemer Fellowship. Let us clothe ourselves with Christ. Let us clothe ourselves. Let us share together in the life of Christ by loving God and loving our neighbors. That's what we've been called to do. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, I thank you for this passage and I thank you for your holy word. I pray, Lord, that as we participate in communion as we live our lives this week and the weeks to come, Father, that we would keep our eyes fixed upon you, Lord. Lord, that we would not be distracted by the noise surrounding us. There's so much noise surrounding us. Father, give us a sense of your peace, peace that can only come from you. Give us a sense of your joy, even in the midst of our mourning and lament, Lord God. Give us a sense of your presence, Lord God, even though we feel so far from you right now in this world. Give us grace, Lord, grace upon grace upon grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.